A warning before we get started. This episode of Not at the Dinner Table is heavy on references to sexual abuse, including child sexual assault. If that brings anything up for you, you can ring 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732. Look after yourself. What I'm trying to say is this. If I was ever going to be raped, I'd like to be raped by Bill Cosby. Because I've been such a big fan of his for so many years. When a comedian gets into hot water for their material, there's one defense you can always count on to come up. It was a joke I said, not my opinion. Not something that I think. Something that I think is funny. There is a big fucking difference between things that I think and things that I think are funny to say. (laughs) If you want to know my actual opinion, my actual opinion is this. I don't want to be raped by Bill Cosby. (laughs) I think he's a horrible fucking man. He should go to prison. That's what my real opinion is. But if I came out and said that, you'd go, oh, Jim's lost his edge. But that argument came under the microscope in 2017 when this happened. He's one of the biggest names in comedy, successful in just about everything he's done. But Louis C.K.'s accusers say he abused his power to commit sexual misconduct. They allege that C.K. either attempted to or masturbated in front of them. In a lengthy statement released on Friday, the comedian and TV star said, At the time, I said to myself that what I did was okay, because I never showed a woman my dick without asking first, which is also true. But what I learned later in life, too late, is that when you have power over another person, asking them to look at your dick isn't a question. It's a predicament for them. CK didn't just use his status and influence as a comedy titan to coerce consent. He also joked about sexual abuses. (laughs) I'm not condoning rape, obviously. You should never uh, rape anyone. Um, Unless you have a reason, like you want to fuck somebody and they won't let you, in which case... uh... What other option do you have? And with the award for worst timing, a trailer for a film CK starred and directed dropped a month before the New York Times published sexual misconduct claims. The final line... I mean, everybody's a pervert. I'm a pervert. We're all perverts. Who cares? You're listening to Not at the Dinner Table, a podcast taking up the issues you want to talk about but don't know how. This episode, is banter really just banter? And what the answer means for the rape joke. To be clear, I'm not claiming a comedian making rape jokes is an indicator they are a rapist. But according to one researcher, they're not just jokes. It is never just a joke. Dr. Aphrodite Pina is a psychology researcher at the University of Kent in the UK. She's been involved in studies on rape culture for more than a decade. Not even just disparaging jokes, but jokes in general have a very specific function in terms of intergroup cohesion and the way that people communicate. They send signals as to what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. Someone making sexist jokes might say, oh, well, you know, I do the jokes, but I don't actually harbour sexist views. And my audience knows I'm not actually saying they should, therefore, what's the harm? But how does that stack up against the research? Um, It doesn't. Whether you believe in it or not, reproducing these jokes is harming. It is making it known that you find it acceptable. Even if you don't believe it, like people won't know, but the fact that you are treating it as a joke 
is an indication that you find it acceptable. Research shows us that the people who enjoy sexist jokes are the people who ascribe, obviously, to sexism more than others. So people who are high in, um, say, hostile sexism, because sexism is, you know, comes in two facets. We've got benevolent, we've got hostile sexism. So the people who are high in, in sexism in general, but particularly hostile sexism, they do also show in research that they enjoy these jokes more. So reproducing these jokes is a way of, as I said before, like reaching cohesion and solidifying a relationship within the group. So to use those, obviously, as the kind of like token of that relationship, it signifies that, you know, you consider them an important part people who are more likely to believe in erroneous myths around kind of rape or sexual violence or um, intimate partner violence are also people who have these sexist beliefs. And these sexist beliefs have also been linked to people's, you know, likelihood or proclivity, not not necessarily whether they will uh, commit or not sexual violence, but actually saying that under, um, you know, kind of specific conditions that they would engage in sexually violent acts. So how are the comedians dealing with material that decades of research is revealing does social harm? I go full lizard brain fight mode. And then it's like an out-of-body experience because I'm not an angry or violent... When Grace Long first took to the comedy stage... She told her story about fighting off a potential serial rapist. And somehow I end up on top of him, looking down at his face, and there's like a little devil on my shoulder being like, punch him in the face! And then there's like a little angel on my shoulder being like, think about what might have happened in this guy's life to make him do this to you, and then punch him in the fucking face! (laughs) It felt great. It was kind of like a a buzz that I'd, I'd never really felt before. My doing stand-up about sexual assault ended up with a bit of an expose in the national newspaper in New Zealand about how New Zealand police were actually mishandling a lot of sexual assault cases. She also has a name for rape jokes aimed at the victim. We call it um, the, the edgelord kind of approach. I think it's another symptom of still living in a society that condones rape culture and victim blaming. It's certainly problematic, but I don't believe in censorship. Comedy is an art form. Anyone should be able to say whatever whatever they want. Can I swear on this? Yeah, you can go if you like. <laughs> yeah, well, they should be able to say whatever the fuck they want. Um, but at the end of the day, I do believe in self-censorship and being a decent person on top of being a good comedian. Given what you just heard, it might surprise you to hear that at the time we're speaking, Grace is planning to give a platform to the uh, edgelords. I'm actually planning a show at the moment called Trigger Happy. The premise of the show is for comedians to bring contentious jokes. The audience will have Nerf guns. And if they feel triggered by a joke, they get to shoot the comedian. And they also get the opportunity to explain why they feel offended or triggered by it. And then the comedian has an opportunity to reflect on whether, oh, yeah, no, actually, that joke is problematic and that bothers me as a person. Maybe I'll rewrite it or I don't care. I found it very frustrating seeing comedians with what I see as very problematic material, any sort of bigotry. But I also know that some comedians have been like, 
banned from the more mainstream clubs because of either their material or their behaviour. And I'm actually not sure how I feel about that. I don't think marginalising people who are behaving problematically is going to help them understand why that's problematic. It will just cause them to feel more justified in their bigotry. They get kicked out of this sandpit for being racist or sexist. So they just make their own sandpit that's more racist and more sexist. There's no space for dialogue or growth. And I think that is so much more helpful to try and talk to people that you don't agree with rather than banning them from a room. Uh, <laughs> I live just down the road from Byron. Byron's very, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting place. A lot of new age people who've, um, they've decided to disconnect from everything except for money. Uh, <laughs> they're still a little bit tied up vibrationally to cash. Uh, My name's Greg Sullivan. I'm a stand-up comedian, a former radio host and a writer. I had a terribly painful childhood, which is the way that a lot of people get into comedy. Along with eating and reading, laughing was one of the few ways that I could make myself feel better. So I started doing stand-up when I was uh, in my first year at uni, when I was 17. I quit uni in my second year. I um, didn't see a future for myself in journalism. Little did I know there was no future in journalism as a whole, but uh, (laughs) uh, I thought uh, I'd rather do stand-up. Now, part of what Greg calls that terribly painful childhood is sexual assault. The first time he told someone was around 30 years old. Flash forward 10 years, and he's on stage in Brisbane telling jokes about it. It didn't get a huge amount of laughs. People were quite upset (laughs) for me and concerned about me, I think. And when I first started dealing with it, you know, 15, 16 years ago, I'd never heard anyone talk freely about surviving childhood sexual assault, especially any men, and I'd never heard anyone speak about it from a place of being healed and not bursting into tears and being able to find the funny side of it. I did some jokes about it and it was... um, You know, I was shaking, even after all this time, as though I was talking about it, you know, as a five- or six-year-old. I was speaking the words of a, you know, a middle-aged man, but um, I was was feeling the feelings of someone who had just gone through it physically. These days I can talk about it pretty freely. And I choose to talk about it because there's a lot of us around. Have you ever found someone upset with your jokes about sexual assault, even with your own experience? Not yet, but I will. Probably from this podcast. You upset people whatever you do. There are people everywhere waiting to be upset by something. And they, you know, I have no way of knowing what will trigger that. You know, being on stage and talking in front of a large group of people or having some kind of platform where a lot of people listen to you is a very powerful and privileged position to be in. That comes with consequences, most of them positive, but some of them um, negative and hard to deal with. 
But, you know, I'll take every complaint on their merits and I'll see if someone has a valid point to make, whether they're reacting out of their own pain or whether they're just being cunts. When I was doing pre-interview research, I actually struggled to find Greg's material on sexual assault. And it turns out there's a reason for that, besides avoiding controversy, that is. I'm aware it's not quite the same without a crowd, but I'm wondering if you can tell me one of those jokes. Oh, um... <laughs> look, I you look. <laughs> These are the sort of jokes that are, you know, like in martial arts, that you have um, black belt level um, martial artists, and then you have black belt level martial artists who get even f- further qualified. This material is a sort of a second or third Dan black belt type of joke i need to be in a situation where the audience sort of knows that horrible things are going to be said but not specifically what horrible things are going to be said and i need to shock them and then care for them afterwards so it's a very long way of saying no i won't tell you those jokes because someone could cut them up out of context and i would look like the worst person in the world i haven't done that material in a situation where it can be recorded uh, and I won't until I'm absolutely happy with it and I'm happy with the recording of it. And I like to be able to be in a position when I'm doing that material to be able to stand at the door and listen to people as they come out and I don't want to trigger anyone who's listening to this and leave them hanging. According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, 1 in 6 Australian women and 1 in 25 men have been sexually assaulted since they were 15. That means one of them will probably be in the audience. So if Greg shows anything, it's that a little duty of care can go a long way. I've had some amazing conversations with people after shows. You know, some people laugh and joke because they've you know they've been through often people are are much earlier on in their process of dealing with it so they're very um tearful some people hug me some people just um yeah i get a lot of hugs because they know that i'm safe and they want to comfort me uh, i guess and and be comforted in that moment obviously a lot of anger as well but more common than anger i think is just a very deep sense of sadness and loss but comedy you know it exists to help us connect with each other and to cope with uh, grief and sadness and loss that's that's the whole role of it as much as you know crying together brings us together and helps us deal with loss um so does laughing Not at the Dinner Table is created and hosted by me, River McCrossan, and published with the Totengala Student Magazine. Supervising editors are Eliza Lorenko and Alec Hall. Transcripts and music found on the website. Captioned episodes released on YouTube. And again, if what we talked about in this episode has brought up anything for you, you can contact 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732.